We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the Esports Biz Show. I'm your host, Justin Jacobson. This week we'll be discussing esports and gaming journalism. Just as a disclaimer, nothing here is intended as legal advice, as all of the information is for educational purposes only. This week's guest is Ahmad Khan. He is the senior Google and internet reporter for CNET, the host of FTW, the Mod, an esports news podcast in association with Dot Esports, and a member of the New York Video Game Critics Circle. His published works with the New York Times, the Washington Post, Tom's Guide, Wired, and ESPN, among many others. And that's ESPN for all those out there. So thanks for joining us. <laughs> no, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, it's uh, it's good to be on. My pleasure. So, you know, RIP ESPN Esports, maybe that's yeah. why it was the subtle slip of the tongue there. But, you know, <laughs> I'm sure we'll get into some of those conversations in a little. But, you mm-hmm. know, let's kind of set the stage. Tell us about your Paris Esports and gaming experience. What was the first game you played and how did you kind of transition to the business side of the industry? Oh, yeah. So if we're going to go really far back, I think the first game I played was probably like Super Mario Brothers at a, at a friend's house. And I begged my my mom for like a video game system. And I think she just went to the Toys R Us and ended up getting a Sega Genesis, not really knowing which was which. And they probably had a deal on the Genesis. It was probably cheaper or whatnot. So that was kind of like my first foray, uh, starting with the Genesis back in the early 90s. And then um, uh, it, after uh, towards the end of college, I decided to go into video game journalism, which uh, meant just blogging at the beginning because I really didn't know what to do. I wasn't a journalism major. Uh, but eventually people started noticing my writing and uh, appreciating my writing. And I started getting uh, work, you know, f- to write for free at some publications. Um, and then the uh, uh, from from there, I um, started getting noticed for from larger publications. Uh, I think my first freelance gig was I like, got the Daily Dot. And that's how I got associated with Dot Esports very early on in my career. Um, and then after uh Daily Dot. I connected with ESPN Esports after Jacob Wolf had left, had left Dot Esports, um, and then for, yeah, other publications such as Digital Trends, uh, Engadget, Wired, Men's Health Magazine, um, and you know went to grad school and all that stuff for journalism, and then got into the Times, the Washington Post, uh, and uh, I was news editor for Tom's Head for a year, and now I'm and I'm with CNET. Amazing. So definitely kind of seen all the ends of it and kind of watched this evolution from, you know, when it was kind of really into infancy when you're just kind of writing these blog posts and kind of just happy to get a byline and didn't really matter about the money to, you know, these major blue chip publications kind of, you know, investing in and kind of publishing it right next to all their other major news. Yeah. At the beginning, the... (laughs) I'd say a lot of the journalism industry is kind of so 
low on cash that it kind of abuses new up and coming writers, right? Because much of the journalism industry is kind of fed through this like weird uh, nepotism wing where uh, people pay to go to Columbia, pay $50,000 for that grad school degree. And then you just happen to see a lot of um, those Columbia grads going off into major publications, uh, you know, very early on, like 23, 24, getting full-time positions. That wasn't the case for me. I really didn't get my first full-time journalism position until I was about 31. Yeah, yeah, around 30 years old. Um, so it, it, it's a really tough industry to uh, make a living off of. And as we're seeing uh, just these past few weeks, it's just been flush with layoffs, especially in the gaming and uh, especially on the gaming side of journalism. Yeah. But I mean, a lot of publications are shutting down, even like the Washington Post, uh, you know, revered uh, Washington Post magazine was was also shuttered. Um, and I think today, uh, what is it? January 31st was all, what's their last day? Yeah, so we'll kind of get into that a little bit later, but tell us a little about kind of what your day-to-day is like, you know, as a reporter, one working, you know, the CNET as well as in the esports and gaming world. Yeah, yeah. So because uh, because my role at CNET has, is pretty different from my, my, my previous work, especially as a freelancer covering gaming and esports, the, I, I cover Google mainly, uh, Google the company, so it's less Android and less YouTube, but most more like... Uh, stuff that's happening uh, at the company larger. So whether it be financial stuff, employment stuff, uh, or just larger changes with the company and how it deals with search and its major tentpole products. So a lot of that has to do with uh, checking out the the latest news in the morning. uh, So when Google Plus went away, that was a big story. Uh, yeah, you know, if I were the uh, if I were the Google Beat reporter at the time, uh, that would have been <laughs> that would have been a big story. But you know, I, I actually uh, completely had forgotten. But Google Plus is actually going up until 2018. They actually shut it down in 2018, years after anybody had really been using it. Uh, and it's because there was say a big I was data. An avid Google Plus user, my profile was quite detailed and robust. Oh, really? Really? When did when when do you think you transitioned out of Google Plus and went back? When to, like, they sent me an Facebook? email saying that it was no longer active. Oh, interesting. So that was in 2018. Yeah, I always kind of, you know, I kind of really feel like every outlet for social media, especially in what I'm doing, makes Mm -hmm. sense to share it. So if it's articles or podcasts like this or, you know, any outlet where like potentially have new viewers and new exposure, that's kind of my, you know, thought process. No, no, that's a very positive thought process to have. Uh, And it's, uh, it's, but, you know, they shut it down because really it was just, there was just a big data breach. A bunch of user data was affected. And I think Google just thought to itself, okay, there's a very slim chance that we can actually create a product here that can compete against Facebook at this point. And this data breach is kind of like, I don't know, the, the straw that broke the camel's back to like overuse that, that metaphor. Sense. So what kind of parallels do you see between, you know, the esports and video game reporting with your day-to-day work at CNET? Hmm. I, I mean... Fundamentally, like it's the same, right? Uh, whether it be your co- whether you're covering Sony, Nintendo, and Microsoft, or you're covering Google, Facebook, and Amazon, it all comes down to looking at these companies, seeing who's working there, trying to discern um, people who are willing to speak to you, trying to find the stories on the inside, and then uh, reporting it out, right? Or and then also just following the day to day developments and uh, being able to follow the trends in a way to where you can create stories that. Um, broaden the conversation in a meaningful way, right? And that uh, readers find valuable. So at a fundamental level, it's they're just different companies that you're reporting on. Uh, the On the esports and gaming side, obviously, it's more art-driven and they're uh, more external studios. So there's more uh, information you can glean from externally than you can at like a major, you know, one single conglomerate like Google. Uh, but other than that, they're, they're pretty similar. 
Awesome. So what was it like kind of, you know, working with legacy publications like New York Times and Washington Post and kind of seeing your name on the byline for such prestigious outlets like those? Yeah, as somebody who uh, jumped into journalism at the end of his co uh, college career, not really knowing if it would work and really just had to grind and grind and grind to see the byline and not only see the byline on the website, but to see it on a physical newspaper was kind of a bit of a redemption. It was a bit of redemption, right? Um, because, you know, these publications are, you know, venerated and it, it shows that your hard work pays off. Uh, in terms of the actual process in working with these publications, first of all, getting in was a lot of, it, it was it was difficult, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, right? It took a lot of emails, and especially when you really don't know anybody at these publications, it's a lot of just emailing and hoping that they reply back. But eventually what, what happened is that uh, when I was living in New York at the time, wires just started to cross, and you just run into people at one event or another, you get to talking, and from there, a face-to-face -face relationship can be made, and when that happens, it's a little easier to get into those publications. Uh, compared to any other publication I worked at, uh, the New York Times and the Washington Post were very rigorous in their edit in their in, in, the, in their editing. Really, the uh, <laughs> I, I I would submit copy to the editor. Right, the editor would call back, and we'd go over the entire article like line by line, um, and then he would send it off to another editor so that after his edit somebody else would edit it right they send back to me and i have to fix it up and then they would send it and then it would go to like a third editor and then after that it would go to a copy editor and then it would go to a fact checker and then legal would look over just to make sure you know not, they, they won't be sued um and after all of that then i get a final draft of like what it'll look like and then i have to make sure that everything that i wanted in the article still remains in the article so i have to kind <laughs> of go back and be like hey you have to make sure that like this point is in here it's really important i understand that you know why you want to take it out but i feel like it should stay in uh, and you kind of have a bit of back and forth, but eventually it goes to publishing. And the goal is to definitely have the most pristine copy as possible because it's printed on paper, right? Uh, very seldom, like if there's a major issue, it can be um, corrected on the digital side, but it's like you really don't want that to happen. You really want it to be as clean as possible um, because once it's in print, the, the, the thing is that uh, New York is an interesting market in that uh, I believe in a day they'll have like two editions go out, like a morning and an afternoon edition of the of the paper. So it's like uh, if there was a error in the <laughs> like a typo in uh, the first printing, it can kind of get into the second printing. It's really interesting in that regard. So how long does that process usually take when you're submitting an article? It sounds like there's a lot of back and forth. Is it days, weeks, or longer? Ah, oh, man, I'm trying to remember, but uh, I think it is. It's it it kind of just depends on the urgency of the story and how much time the editor has for it, right? So I'll submit a pitch and you, the pitch itself is like a, it's almost like writing a mini article because you really want the pitch to shine. You, you Because it, the pitch has to be so good that the editor kind of immediately approves it and can go to their managing editor and be like, hey, I'm improving this story because really it's like there's, there's something here. Uh, so that makes it all easier, just sending a really thought out, well-written pitch. Um, and then once the editor gets back to you, um, you can start discussing like, okay, this is kind of the word count we're looking for, and this is kind of the deadline we're looking for. Uh, and once you do some back and forth, and you just start sending out emails uh, to get some interviews done. Um, and it really, you know, just depending on the complexity of the story, but I would say it can, like, a feature story can take about a month, yeah. Um, and then, it, it, then at that point, it's all up to, to the times to figure out. Now, the story I did on, like, uh, you know, streamer, game streamer fashion in which I interviewed like Pokimane and um, 
you know, some other professional players and whatnot. That took a while. It was a little, it was derailed because of the pandemic. Uh, it, it, we were working on it literally like in, we did the photo shoot in February. Um, and then the pandemic hit in March and it just kind of derailed everything. So that took about a year to publish, but I think that was kind of like an extenuating circumstance. Definitely. So what would you say your favorite part about, you know, the job is? Hmm. I mean, so I, 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 I kind of relate to journalism to almost like writing an essay, writing an essay for school, but it's about stuff you actually want to write about. So when, when you, when you, when an idea comes into your head and you're like, Hey, I think this would be a cool thing to write about just because I'm interested in it. Or I see like the, the uniqueness in it that nobody else sees, uh, when you're actually interviewing people and getting their stories or getting you know, kind of jumping into their world for a bit that I find really rewarding. The, the other thing that's also really um, fascinating is the craft of journalism and really how it is about if pure efficiency, especially in the digital age where most people won't read an article that's over like six, 800 words. Right. So you have to, really be so precise with the quotes that you're pulling and how you're wording things because you really have to hit these word counts. Uh, and the, the craft is just kind of getting, um, it, it's being more honed in that regard. And that's interesting to kind of uh, live through. Right. It's like no one wants to read a long article other than me who just enjoys reading stuff. They want all of it in 500 words and they want to get <laughs> to the next one. Oh, for sure. I mean, there's still publications that, can do long form like the New Yorker magazine or New York magazine, but those are all like essentially magazine publications. Right. And that's a very particular uh, type of person. You know, I think Vox last week did a really interesting report on how social media companies are really um, reprogramming our brains and are the, like how impatient we are. Right. Um, right. And, and how we consume media and how we just yeah. need everything right then and there. And you can get everything on your fingertips whenever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because here's the thing, right? Like, if you're reading a 2,000 word article and you're like, "Ugh, why? You know, this stayed forever. I can just be browsing TikToks instead, or blah, blah, blah." Uh, I mean, that's it's it's kind of screwed up to say, but yeah, it's a little bit by design um, because these publications have deep data, or these not publications, but these social media companies have deep data on like how to keep people on and glued to their screens. And yeah, it is kind of like screwing up how we absorb information, and probably for the worst, right? Because it's good to. It's one thing to watch like a television show. It's another thing to read the book. Um, I'm sure anybody who's watched like a famous TV show that's based on a book will always hear from their friends like, oh, yeah, the show is great, but the book just has so much more. And it's really hard to appreciate it until you actually re read those pages. Right. Don't forget reading. Reading's important, all my <laughs> listeners out there. So, you know, sometimes the movie is not as good as the book, contrary to what TV tells you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so what would you say the hardest part of the job is, you know, especially for me, people trying to enter the space? For people trying to enter into the space, the hardest part of the job is writing well, right? It's it, And to write well, you need to read a lot. Um, and then writing is also just something that takes years to develop, uh, uh, years to develop to a point where people will actually want to read your work. Uh, you know, it's actually... Now that I think about it, I mean, that's definitely one, one of the hardest parts. The other hardest part is just literally just getting any work, right? Uh, the publications have limited freelance budgets, especially once, um, especially when the economy's in downturn, like those freelance budgets really, really wither up. Like the early in, during 2020, when 
the pandemic hit and all these companies were pulling uh, advertising dollars out of publications, like I wasn't getting any work. It was a really difficult time. I was still a freelancer at the time. So um, for anybody wanting to get in, just like, know you have to write really well and know that you're going to have to work really hard for um, to just get your, get your stuff in publications and be paid on time, right? Well, isn't that kind of part of all of these kind of like glamorous kind of jobs, you know, entertainment, music, sports, fashion, where it's like you don't necessarily get paid the kind of a fair wage sometimes, whether for, you know, better or for worse, where it's like the experience in theory is meant to kind of be some of that compensation. Again, I don't yeah, know if I, I don't necessarily agree, but, you know, that's always part of their argument. The yeah, the weird thing with journalism as an art form compared to music or movies or you know other kind of production is that there's a public service component to it, right? So uh, people who are entering journalism, they're not doing it just for like you know so they can become a famous pop star. Obviously not. Uh, maybe become an author at some point, but it's really just because they feel that um, s- stories need to be told uh, and uh, you know, power should be held to account. So that's that's like one aspect of it. And then the other aspect in which you said that like you know publications are like oh here you're gonna take this substandard pay because you know it's the experience it's a byline you know maybe you could swing that off into a job the problem is that the journalism industry has been so gutted by how internet companies have uh changed the the core business model and the fact that the internet itself was like a, a free like there wasn't monetization built into the internet from the beginning that we expect all this information for free it's really gutted a lot of newsrooms so many publications local publications have shut down so it's it's the incentive the incentive structure has made it so that publications have to fire a lot more people and have to work on much skinnier staffs. Well, and then they have to kind of rely on their feature reporting to come from freelancers. Uh, so they'll have to essentially like a huge part of their strong feature reporting ends up coming from freelancers that they end up underpaying, and then they ultimately cannot afford to put on staff full time. So it's a real compared to like any other industry in media. Media journalism is in a really tough position and uh, there are some outlets there that are trying to figure out uh, ways to fix that i mean only so many publications can charge a subscription fee um you know you're out in new york so i assume you have a subscription to the new york times for example but if um the san francisco post has like a a really great article you might want to read it but if it's asking you for for a subscription you're like well you know i don't live in san francisco so it's kind of like the monetization is a little odd and there are places like post.news that are trying to change that a little bit and i I, i'm hopeful that some some kind of uh solution comes but it's really a difficult space and uh, it seems that the social media companies and google really do not want to share any of online revenues right they want they just want to direct people to you but you know they they uh but of course that's all based on how they frame their algorithms, right? And how immediately one small change could mean that your website is now getting 50% less traffic. And you really don't know why. Definitely. I definitely kind of went down the rabbit hole with SEO. We had an individual on previous who kind of Mm. worked on some of that, but kind of shifting gears a little bit. So how do you kind of handle a situation where maybe you post something and, you know, either media or another player or someone kind of criticizes your article and maybe you don't get the best reaction? Yeah, you know, that that happened to me with a Washington Post article uh, a while, uh, about two years back where I wrote about uh, the Smash community online and how it was uh, the article was essentially that the Smash community might be in trouble or the fighting games community might be in trouble during the pandemic because people aren't able to play locally. And a lot of places, a lot of um, there there wasn't really great netcode built into a lot of fighting games. That's that's changed since. But um, 
I got some criticism because they're like, hey, you know, you ignored this very critical component, which is uh, Slippy, which is this uh, rollback netcode system made for emulation. And I think I had made a blip of it in the article, but I didn't really d- dive deep into it. And the reason I didn't dive deep into it, and there's a bit of regret in that, is that it, it re- relied on edu- uh, emulation, which ultimately then relies on a bit of game piracy. And it's not necessarily the easiest thing to do for like a, from a layman's perspective. So I didn't dive super deep into it. And it wasn't really an article on like, you know, Slippy. It was just an article on the fighting games community in general. So it, it took the editor over at the Washington Post, Mikhail Klimentov, to like kind of go into the Reddit threads and answer people's questions. And I felt bad that he had to do that. Um, but really, the best way to do it is to uh, engage with the community and just tell them like, hey, you know, these are kind of the editorial decisions we made. Um, we're sorry that like, you know, we didn't touch on this. Um, you can then try to expand on it for people who really care in Reddit comments and Twitter, Twitter threads and whatnot. And that's just one way to kind of deal with it. And ultimately, if it really does become an, uh, a larger issue, then you can touch the topic again at a future article. Interesting. So the internet trolls really come and get you and they don't like, and you just have to kind of engage with them, even if you don't necessarily want to or feel the need to. It really depends, right? Like it, uh, I mean, if if you're, if you're uh, like, if you're like Taylor Lorenz, for example, over at the Washington Post, who covers a lot of like internet culture and internet celebrity celebrity dumb she gets a lot of um attacks from fans of like youtubers and whatnot that don't like the fact that she's writing articles that might be critical of them or you know or taking or listening to people's accounts that are critical of them so her uh, it, it for her it comes to the point where you know people are really attacking her um and uh, there was a reason she left the new york times she felt that the new york times wasn't really protecting her well enough that's different right like you, can, if you engage with those types of trolls, then it it, it might not end well. Uh, it it really just depends on how they're engaging. And if they're engaging in a constructive way, then you can engage in a constructive way back. Definitely, I think that's great advice. That is kind of the content and the context of the message. Mm-hmm. So we've kind of been dancing it around, but let's kind of like focus on it a little bit more. So there's been a series of high profile layoffs and shutdowns in the esports and video game media, including most recently the Washington Post launcher vertical. So let's discuss what are some hurdles in the esports and gaming reporting and what are maybe some suggestions to kind of, you know, fix it or, you know, help it. Uh, yeah, I mean, games reporting is in a really weird space. So, so first of all, I, I, let's start off with just how gaming content is being, uh, like games reporting content is being consumed at the moment, right? A lot of it is being filtered through, let's say, esports teams that want to, like, push a certain message and just PR press releases. And there are a few outlets that'll just kind of like regurgitate uh, PR press releases without any greater analysis. Um, and then it's coming from like commentators on Twitch and YouTube and whatnot that are taking up, um, uh, that are taking up a lot of attention because of their outsized uh, audience growth. But, uh, you know, obviously to build that audience, they were doing wacky things on YouTube and whatnot, right? Like drinking hot sauce or I don't know what, I'm just making things up. And that's something that a journalistic publication really can't do. And because of the nature of news, because it's public service, right? If the New York Times has like a, I don't know, a major report on Team Liquid or Sony or whatever, uh, because it's the because of the nature of information, they can't, they can paywall that information. But if somebody reads it and then just regurgitates it, I mean, that it's free game, right? Because um, that's just how the free press works, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, the nature of the beast and i think gaming uh, because of how the game community online consumes content it's kind of stuck in this difficult place where it can't it, it can't monetize right because gamers 
uh, haven't been brought up to like pay for journalism for right? anything Even- content music <laughs> movies yeah. tv like what you're saying emulation pirating like they've been modding everything since warcraft 3 right <laughs> i mean even launcher the 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 vertical on the washington I mean, post CSGO is, go is a mod yeah uh but launcher itself at the at the washington post was free like you did not need a washington post subscription to read it um and the way they subsidized that model was through one, making sure they had good traffic and good ads, but also making uh, deals with like major sponsors like Geico Gaming um, so, to you know fund the operations. So that's a difficult way to go about doing it. It would be great if people who are you know donating uh, subs to their YouTubers and uh, Twitch streamers, if they could you know send that over to like Polygon or Kotaku or some of these gaming publications, that'd be great too. Um, but I think that's like one aspect of it, right? It's just the games media space, even though gaming is a huge industry and esports is you know, this an industry uh, subset of it. Uh, it's just really hard to figure out a way to build value into that. And other than like the hardcore group of like high-minded readers that care to pay for Jacob Wolf's Substack, for example, or that care to pay for a subscription to Wired Magazine, which will have the occasional gaming article, it's... Uh, it's really tough for a gaming only publication to to make a ton of money and uh i can't really think of a, a major major success in like last uh few years at least it's 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 super tough right and i think ultimately it kind of goes to the same issue that media rights is kind of happening it's like everyone is used to getting everything for free on youtube and twitch and watching all these events where it's like mm-hmm. you're not really going to charge someone you know a five dollar subscription to be able to watch an esl csgo man like like it's mm-hmm. just not gonna work in the ecosystem it will be you know a lot of backlash and the numbers will drop drastically to where mm-hmm. like it will probably become a problem so you know, I think that it's the nature of the consumer and, you know, what kind of solutions do we have? Is it more like an infotainment, you know, infotainment focus where, you know, you're having these more ESPN style. Um, this is what's going on with more, you know, interviews with the different players and the developers and people working there. And, you know, we also see kind of, you know, the rise of these more media driven personalities, almost like the Colbert and Daily Show, you know, John Stewart model. So. Yeah. Maybe that's how it goes. Yeah, the problem with like being a personality is that you can't really be a good reporter then, right? Because if you know that if somebody who uh, a Twitch personality, for example, that you know makes shows for entertainment or makes or let's say like Hassan, for example, who um, has very left leaning commentary, and if he goes to a let's say he goes to three four three industries and he wants to do a report on then like halo's development and how that completely like, fell apart a lot of people would be like unwilling to speak to them because they're just like oh you know who are you um and how are you going to spin this like you know we know, and you've already gotten in trouble for saying this and that right like they don't have the shield of like a major publication or like a brand name to really protect them um and then also if you're if, if you're just like a youtube personality and you want to become a reporter know that like you can definitely do that but you're missing strong editorial guidance, which is really important. You're missing a legal team that can like protect you in case you say something wrong and then get sued, right? Uh, these are all things you have to consider. Uh, like the whole vetting process. And like, yeah, it's great to get your tweet or your little video up as quick as you can. But if you're wrong, a retraction tweet might not do it depending on who you messed up with. Yeah, and really just having – Good ed- having a good editor or team of editors makes a huge difference because if you're interviewing people, let's say, again, I'll use three four three example, and let's say they're all really angry at like 
you know, Halo and Microsoft and whatnot, right? You're without a good editor to kind of be like, hey, you know, I think you're only kind of getting one set of opinions here. And that's from people who are angry that might be wanting to leave. Um, You're kind of your your reporting is being biased here, right? It's you need to have people there that can that have a ton of experience on in traditional journalism to rein in the polls of really compelling testimony. So Definitely there's a need, lot of there's a lot that goes into it yeah i agree i think that's one of the things that you kind of see between some of these more legacy publications and some of these people that just kind of you know create a wordpress and go for it where it's mm-hmm. like you kind of have to have this balance approach because don't they say there's three stories there's you know my side your side and the truth and it's kind of like figuring out what variation of all of those is going to come out I, I you know you'd be you'd be really surprised so for example um since I do cover internet culture, there are a lot of instances where things will come up and where my editors will push back on it. So a few weeks ago, Andrew Callahan, who had his uh, documentary release on HBO Max, um, he there were allegations that came up against him. And I talked to my editors and like, OK, you know, is this something that we should comment on or report on? And a bunch of publications have been like, hey, allegations have been levied against this guy, blah, blah, blah. Um, and they were just like, look, to actually do a proper reporting on these types of allegations, which were, you know, difficult to read about and um, in nature, it's it's a lot of work, right? And it takes a lot of editorial oversight and a lot of research to do it right. Uh, it's one, it's, and ultimately, if you're just like another publication that's just saying, hey, this is what's going on, you're not really doing anything great for the reader. You're not really adding to the conversation. You're not really bringing any new reporting. You're just kind of like, just throwing more junk into like the Google machine. So it's a, it's nice to be with a publication, for example, that doesn't have to rely literally on like every single news hit having to having to go in. But also, it's really nice to be with a publication that, that can be like, hey, this is something that we can do and this is something we uh, could do. But to do it right, you know, it's going to take some resources. So let's sit. Let's go into a meeting room and figure this out. Definitely. So esports and video game reporting is definitely kind of on the trajectory it's on i think you know i think it's kind of going to do the best that it can yeah i mean i think i i think it's a really tough space at the moment if anybody were to come to me and said hey i want to be a video game reporter then in my opinion you have two options one you be the best freaking video game reporter ever and you have such incredible sources and industry knowledge that a major publication like Bloomberg or, or the New York Times or whatever will hire you up. But to get to that point is really difficult, right? That means there really isn't even a good avenue to get to that anymore, it seems, right? uh, to become like the star reporter. You have to have um, some kind of publication to really um, help you out to get to get to that point and fly you out and meet with all these people and build trust and whatnot. The other thing and kind of the thing that I'm doing and I'm seeing a lot of, uh, I'm, I'm, I think I'll see a lot of uh, other games journalists do, uh, reporters do is that they'll transition to a beat that is a bit more solvent, right? So, I mean, I cover Google. Um, the, you know, another reporter might cover like a different industry or politics and whatnot. Uh, but because of their passion for games, they'll be able to slip in a few articles here, here and there throughout the year. Um, and it's kind of sad, but yeah, I think games journalism, at least really high quality reporting in games journalism, might need to be subsidized by just more traditional reporting. The outliers are sites like IGN that drive such tremendous traffic um, that 
they can have a few and they're like video game reviews and they get yeah. the exclusive first look at stuff that's the level that they're at we're like you're gonna get the new never before seen trailer there first you know i would I, I don't know ign's internal numbers but i would be surprised if a majority of their traffic comes from people typing in ign.com i would suspect with no evidence here but i would suspect that a majority of their traffic comes from google search people typing in you know, Call of Duty review or Minecraft tips or how do I beat this boss in Legend of Zelda, right? And because IGN has been such an authority on um, games reporting, it, it it filters like it has a preference or filters up easily more easily in, in Google search. So um, that's how I assume they get so a majority. If you're trying of the traffic, to work in it, go fun. to IGN. They dominate the internet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it'd be great if people would just go to websites like they normally did, but it's. Uh, Everyone kind of goes through their various channels now. And that has its own pros and cons. Amazing. So as we mentioned, you're also a member of the New York Video Game Critics Circle. So what is the organization? Why did you join it? Right. So the New York Video Game Critics Circle is a nonprofit organization that uses uh, – that it's a consortium of journalists who cover video games and uses its resources to help uh, underprivileged kids in uh, parts of Manhattan and the Bronx. The idea is to use um, fundraising, an award show, th- other types of things to raise money to then create pro- after-school programs for kids that are interested in video games and want to go into the industry but really don't have an avenue because they're not like, you know, in a cool part of Silicon Valley or you know their parents aren't programmers, right? Um, so what 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 it does is that it creates classes on you know critiquing games and understanding games and uh, writing about games or even kind of writing for a game right uh or using like little big planet to create your own game and really trying to push creativity from uh kids and showing them that hey just because your parents don't know anything about software development or aren't writers or you have nobody in your family who's been a journalist that uh, you can still do this and this is kind of a way to to get around it using a hobby that you're really passionate about um so that's the New York Game Critics Circle. I joined because um, they needed somebody who knew about esports, and I was in New York at the time, and uh, I knew about esports. So they asked me if I wanted to join, and I said, uh, "Heck yeah!" Amazing. So they actually just hosted the twelfth annual New York Video Game Awards at the SVA Theater in Manhattan, which I luckily attended and enjoyed. So tell me about the award show. What was like attending in person, and what was like presenting an award? You know, I saw you up there. <laughs> Yeah, so the award show, the, the our game awards are uh, very low key, especially when compared to Jeff Keeley's uh, game awards. Although Jeff Keeley was at our show, he's a big supporter of ours and always flies out for for our award uh, our award show. He's he's a really nice guy, um, and yeah, the the award show it's just it's unlike the Oscars or you know other major major award shows. It's because it's so much more low key. It feels a bit more familial, um, and it's cool. You can just usually just hang around, chat a little. You know, uh, it's you know, the, the production is uh, not at the Game Awards level, but I guess there's a bit of a charm to that, right? It's a bit more indie in that regard. Uh, but again, like the, the goal of the award show is uh, not to show a bunch of gameplay trailers for the new Mario movie or whatnot. Not that that's not important, right? I mean, that's I, I, I'm interested in checking out that movie. But it's really just to make sure that um, we're bringing New York's journalism, uh, games journalists together, to and the surrounding games industry together to help support an important cause. 
Definitely. So a special shout out to Marvel Snap for winning best mobile <laughs> game. You know, while I'm biased, I tend to occur with that decision. So I was pleased when, you know, I got to witness that live. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's, it's a great title. Um, so you also host a podcast. Um, tell us a little about that and why'd you start it and what are some of the stuff that you've discussed on it? Right. So I, FTW with Amon Khan is an esports news podcast that really models itself after the New York Times, uh, The Daily. So the idea, instead of being a daily show, it's a weekly show in which I bring on a reporter uh, and we discuss a major topic of news within the esports industry. The goal of the show is one, to have a very tight, concise show that's 15 to 20, min- 20 minutes long that can dive into a specific topic. And the goal is really to highlight not personalities, not celebrities, but to really highlight other esports journalists, right, from around the industry. And that does sometimes include uh, competitors to dot uh, esports. But I think it's all for, I think it's all in the greater purpose of just highlighting some, you know, good quality journalism and reporters and having them speak about the beats that they report on. And I think in some way it can be a, a, a great learning experience for some of these young reporters who've had the opportunity to write a bunch of articles about a specific game or write a bunch of guides about a specific game, but then to be able to come onto a microphone and explain it in a manner that's more, I, I would say, radio friendly is a different skill to hone. And I'm, I'm glad to have an outlet for that. Uh, and I'm glad that, you know, Dodd has been able to partner, partner with me on this. And um, I don't know, I just hope that uh, it's, it's a bit of a side project of mine, but I hope that I can continue pushing out uh, episodes uh, throughout the year and for years to come. So what do you think the future of esports journalism is? I think the future of esports journalism is, uh, it's, a, it's in a tough bind right now, right? The few publications that are able to pay reporters, uh, like, you know, Dot Esports and Dexerto, they really have to make their money on uh, a lot of Google SEO traffic. So if you do become a full-time esports reporter, let's say about covering League of Legends, be sure you're going to end up writing a lot of content to feed the Google machine, which is like, you know, how do I do X, Y, and Z in League of Legends? Or when does X character costume come out in League of Legends? And it's kind of like useless, vapid content uh, that I fear, or if that will just get kind of replaced by AI, because some of that stuff is just, you know, exists in press releases and an AI can probably just regurgitate that out really quickly. Um, but that, uh, that kind of like... SEO style content is what's what can subsidize your greater reporting and, you know, interviewing players, interviewing teams, going out to events, learning and finding scoops um, uh, on on teams and whatnot. Uh, and that's I don't know, that's where that's what has me worried, right? Just like how will esports journalism continue to monetize, especially when uh, the esports audience is expect already expects to. Well, it's also, it's not as big as the general gaming audience, right? To be, because it's one thing to be a fan of League of Legends. It's another thing to be a fan of watching other people play League of Legends, right? So that's kind of a, a subsect of that community. Uh, and then that community also, they're fans of their players and they're fans of those teams. And uh, I worry that a lot of them are more than happy to just get the information dra- direct from those fans or from random Reddit and Twitter com- uh, comments with like no-name profiles. Uh, versus people who take the time to report. So it's it, it, the esports journalism economy is really tough, and uh, it's it's a it's a super it's a major major grind. Um, and it it really, I think it really won't change until uh, either these until like really the esports community uh, learns to value it, 
and is kind of willing to pay for it a little bit, right? I mean, again, like I mentioned earlier, like Jacob Wolf has his Substack as uh, as does James Fudge, who used to be with Esports Observer. He has his own Substack as well, and there are a few others out there that do. And that's good for just one person and one editor, right? Uh, but the yeah, I, I it's I I just really worry about the journalism space. And here's the thing, like the esports industry, even they they want to be treated the same way as the regular sports industry and to have that you need to have a press room and a press scrum and have like interviews and if that room is empty after the players walk out because like none of these publications can afford to like pay any journalists like that's that's not a good look for the industry overall right it's kind of like the opposite direction of what you're trying to do instead of like ex- making everything exciting about them and being player focused and storyline driven you don't have anyone to drive the stories where you know like being you were here in new york like there's a zillion people that cover the Jets, the Giants, the Yankees, the Knicks. Like sure. <laughs> so many people are vying for it, and people are paying to get stuff that they can't get elsewhere. Hmm. It, but you know, even like at, um, there have been a bunch of sports publications that have uh, had layoffs and shuttered. It's just like, um, it's, you know, it's it, it's tough. It is really tough to like uh, build build a brand, build an audience, and build trust, right? Uh, a lot of journalism is just, it's slow. It just takes time. And because you're reading content on a page and not a person, you know, with a selfie camera, you know, talking to you directly through a TikTok, it's hard to like put a, a face to the names that you're reading on, on a publication. Um, so yeah, that trust is just so, it takes so much longer to build. Um, but that trust is like all you really have. Definitely. So I think you kind of come from a different journalistic background than, you know, like you said, the SEO kind of pumping generation. No, so, no, I've done a ton of that. Don't, don't believe me. <laughs> well, not by choice, by <laughs> designation. By necessity, yeah. Um, so what's the future for you in the esports and video game space? And, you know, what about overall as a reporter? Yeah, you know, as a reporter, I, I hope to continue just doing a good job and writing good content and freeing people and writing good stories. Um, on the esports and gaming side, I've I've obviously I've taken a step back with my new role at CNET, but I hope to continue just to like have one foot one foot in the door, right? Um, and if I see a major story, you know, use the uh, the editing powers over at CNET to elevate elevate those those stories. Um, and really, I think at the moment that's the best I can hope for. Amazing! So I try to end each episode with my three questions. So, what's your favorite game to watch? Oh, my favorite game to watch has to be Super Smash Brothers Melee. The the evolution of that game. I mean, even like in 2013, when I was like, man, I don't think I think this 15 year old game can't be expanded upon anymore. It's like, or 12 year old game can't be expanded on anymore. It's like, it's these players are too good. And even 10 years later, right, 20 years after the game came out, they're, they're still just finding ways to push and push that game. And that's without any any software updates from Nintendo, right? Because the game is so old. I, I find that completely just absolutely fascinating. I don't think there's any other eSport like it. Definitely. So what's your favorite game to play? Favorite game to play? That's, uh, yeah, that's a, it, it obviously it varies. I can, so by favorite game to play, do you mean like, multiplayer games that are just kind of I like mean, you can play all or? of them, you know, all the time <laughs> what you're playing now, you know. Yeah, huh, man. That's a good question. I've uh there've been a lot of great games I've I've had the opportunity of playing over uh, through my years. Um 
but the few that really do come back to me at least the one that um i really do have a, a soft spot for is like the original metroid prime on gamecube um really just loved jumping into that that alien world uh being in that first person perspective um and i you know i have a huge soft spot for metroid um, as i do like you know legend of zelda and resident evil and all those ones but metroid prime uh i usually listed uh you know, among my like top favorite games amazing so who's your favorite video game character <laughs> uh video game character huh that's a that's also a tough one i don't know uh maybe it's samus aaron you know samus is uh she's really cool and calm collected and uh <laughs> i don't know I, I feel like uh she whatever the whatever the challenge she rises up or turns into a ball and success <laughs> Well, good. That's what we like to hear. So, you know, thank you so much for joining us. This was extremely insightful. So tell me where they can find you and your work. Right. Yeah, yeah. So the best way to find my work is uh, over at CNET. And, of course, uh, I tweet out all my articles. So follow me at Imad on Twitter. It's just my first name, I-M-A-D. And, yeah. Awesome. So thanks, everybody, again for tuning in. And make sure to follow me on Twitter, Justin J-E-S-Q. And check Apple Podcasts for all our past episodes. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.